First John chapter four. In our passage this morning, which is the first six verses of chapter four, John is returning to the subject of doctrine. It was introduced to us first in the prologue and then expanded upon in chapter two. And what I'm getting ready to say is basically a paraphrase or a summary of what John is going to do or what he's been doing uh, from the prologue, from expanding upon the subject of the doctrine in chapter two, and then now what we're gonna be studying in chapter four. When it comes to doctrine in first John, and when I say doctrine, that is uh, a set of beliefs. So we have a set of beliefs uh, about God, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, uh, salvation. And uh, when it comes to doctrine, as far as John is concerned, it's not supposed to change. It's supposed to stay the same. But he wants to make sure that we understand that there is a satanic effort to change it, to distort it. And since we know that the adversary is wiser, stronger, works in the supernatural world, and just, we are no match for the devil and his demons. And if we were left to fend for ourselves, we would be in a world of hurt at great disadvantage. But that's not the case at all because God has actually given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit indwells us and since he indwells us, it means that he never leaves us. And one of the neat things that the Holy Spirit does for us is he leads us into understanding truth. God's truth. And so in John, he talks about the fact that doctrine is supposed to remain consistent. We are supposed to stay faithful to it. We're not supposed to depart from it or allow it to change. So we're supposed to guard it with all that we are. Knowing that there's a very powerful adversary that is so much more powerful than us that is working against that, trying to destroy the gospel message. And so this leaves us with a, a, a huge problem if we were on our own, but we're not. We're not at all. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the, the ministries of the Holy Spirit to us is that he helps us to understand God's truth. In 1 John, when he talks about that, he calls it the anointing. So when he refers to us as being anointed, it's talking about that special work or ministry of the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand truth. So, if we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and He helps us to understand truth, God's truth, then why are there so many different churches? Why do so many Christians disagree about things? Well, we can be sure that that's not God's fault. In the prologue, which I refer to all the time because it's, it's central to this letter, it's the most important part of the letter. Uh, in the prologue, John speaks on behalf of the apostles. 
And when he does this, he's talking about the things that the apostles taught. You'll remember in the prologue, and the prologue is the first four verses of chapter one. Uh, you'll remember that they are talking about what they saw, what they heard, what they watched about the word of life over a long period of time, what they touched. That's what they declared to you. And so when he says to you, that's referring to his audience. And now we are all reading 1 John and studying it, so we too are his audience. And so in the prologue, he's basically talking about this body of truth, this doctrine, this, set, uh, this body of facts that they were eyewitnesses to, that they declared to all of these Christians in the first century. It was truth that they believed. Um, this slide here shows you uh, basically what the gospel message is. We know that the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And by putting our faith in him, we can have eternal life. That's the gospel. But when the gospel comes under attack, these are the areas. And so when you're just... Well, we're just studying First John. That's all we're trying to do, you guys. So we've, we've been studying First John. And it opens up with this really wonderful prologue, this introduction that talks about how uh, all of these amazing things that we witnessed and saw firsthand have been declared to you, and you've believed too. And so we should all remain in fellowship, because um, when you're in fellowship with God, one of the things that you enjoy is, is joy. There's a certain kind of a peace and joy that you have by being in fellowship with God. But collectively, if we're all in fellowship, the joy is complete. And so that speaks about the members of the body of Christ, that all of the members of Christ's body need to be in fellowship for this joy to be complete. But then when we move to chapter 2, we find out that this message, this but this set of beliefs, this doctrine that we accepted in the beginning is under attack. And these are the three areas. They're going to talk about attack the person of Christ, who he actually is. Is Jesus a, a really a historical figure? Was he a complete idiot? Was he super proud and led a bunch of low IQ uh, gullible people off the deep end? Was he even a man? He was God, but he wasn't, definitely wasn't a man, or he definitely wasn't God. And so you can see the different ways that the person of Christ is attacked, and then what it is that he actually accomplished. You know, did Jesus die on the cross just for original sin, and the rest of your sins have to be taken care of by praying to saints and going to Mass? If you don't quite get all of those worked off, you can die and go to purgatory and work the rest of them off. What did he actually accomplish? When Jesus died on the cross, did he pay for all of your sins? And when you put your faith in him, that blood is applied to all past, present, and future sins. You're saved. You're rescued. And then finally, what does it offer? What is it actually offered to us? It's a free gift. It's not something we earn. So these are the areas of this doctrine that in particular are under attack. And we will see that as we move through here. Now, in chapter 2... If you're in the Bible here and you just want to follow through what I'm talking about, 
verses 18 through 27 is the first time that John began to discuss this issue we have with our doctrine. And just in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, why this is important, just keep in mind that uh, a long time ago, some fellow by the name of Joseph Smith claims that an angel interpreted some gold plates. And he wrote those plates down. It's the Book of Mormon. What he did initially has led six, there's 16 million people in the world today who claim the Mormon faith. There's eight and a half million that follow the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Bible tells us in chapter, in, in, in 1 Timothy 4 and in 2 Timothy 4, it makes it very clear that Christians can be led astray and then in the end times there will be a great apostasy and people will be walking away from the faith. And so this is a warning to us. It's a warning. We don't want to be ignorant of the fact that someone is out to get us. Someone is trying to destroy your life, your walk, and your testimony. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, it says, It is the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. And then he talks about how there were people that were in the church, but they left because they weren't of them. They didn't belong to the real body of Christ. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. Well, what kind of knowledge is he talking about? He's talking about how we understand the gospel. You remember that the world is blinded by the God of this world. They're blind. But we're not. Our eyes have been opened. It's a miracle. And then he goes on in verse 22 and he says, And the liar denies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. That's that body of truth. Verse 27 says, The anointing you received from him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things. So he's beginning to introduce us to three or four really important concepts here. The first one is that what we heard from the beginning, our doctrine, must remain in us. It's something we're supposed to guard. And this might sound like just, you know, just super remedial and elementary, but... Uh, I can tell you that, you know, and you should know as well as me that when when God when the when the devil attacks, he's clever and subtle. And he takes his time. And so you have to be on guard. You need to have a full armor on every day and you need to ask God to keep that hedge of protection up around you like he had around Job because you're vulnerable without him. It's the picture of us crawling underneath God's little wings, like little chickens under his wings, and he protects us. He keeps us from being proud and walking through life without prayer, walking through life without reading our Bible, walking through life without going to church and being around other believers, being accountable to each other. So right off the bat, this warning implies, inherently implies that we can be led astray. And whatever sad consequences follow when you're led astray, one of the most immediate and worst ones is that you're out of fellowship with God. That fellowship is severed. 
Then he tells us that the Antichrist is coming, but he's already here. Well, what that means is that the demonic influence that's going to be behind the future Antichrist is already in the world and active today. That's what that means. And what is that spirit of the Antichrist doing? He's denying the Father and the Son. He's denying that Jesus is the Messiah. These are all things that were developed in chapter 2. And then finally, in verses 19 and 27, he tells us that the anointing from the Holy One uh, does one thing in particular for us. It gives us knowledge, spiritual truth. The carnal man does not understand spiritual truth, but we do. And it's something we take for granted as Christians. You know, you're around people that are lost all the time, but they just don't understand. They can't without God helping them. And so the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so in this morning, our passage in chapter 4, what we're going to find out is that one of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us is He teaches us to discern truth from error. And my wife and my kids will all tell you that um, I want to see the best in people. And sometimes I don't see things that I should see. And uh, I need them. God has placed these people in my life to protect me because I have a weakness in this area, and I, I realize this now. So our passage begins in verse uh, 24 of chapter 3. Because if you'll remember, uh, John uh, moved through those four uh, categories. Uh, there, there they are. He moves through those four subjects. And in the passage we studied over the past uh, two weeks, he covered obedience and godliness. And now we've moved on to doctrine. And so, uh, verse 24, the first half of verse 24 summarizes and closes out that first, that large section. And then the, the last half of verse 24 introduces what we're actually studying. So let's uh, begin with verse 24. The one who keeps his commands remains, remains in him, and he in him. And the way we know that He remains in us is from the Spirit He has given us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out to the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming, and he is already in the world now. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. So there, in verse 24, the last half of verse 24, tells us that we know that He remains in us is from the Spirit, is because of the Spirit that He's given to us. So this is talking about how the Holy Spirit permanently indwells every believer. Now, uh, we're talking about discernment, testing the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. In verse 6, he closes by saying, from this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. And so there's this area of discernment that's supposed to be in the life of a believer. Now, uh, 
This is one of those messages, you guys, where there's like a million rabbit trails. Yeah, so I'm really trying not to do that. I'm trying to be very disciplined in what I've put together here. But um, when you receive Christ as your Savior, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us that we, all of us, were baptized into the body of Christ. Okay? We were baptized into the body of Christ. This verse here in Ephesians is telling us that when we believed, we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it tells us that we are sealed until the day of redemption. It's a done deal. So all of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who received Christ, and it's a permanent situation. And all of us have been baptized into the body of Christ. And now you may have heard people talk about the spiritual gift of discernment. And the way it works is that the body of Christ all of is made up of many members or people. And all of us have been giving, given spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit assigns gifts to all of us. And so when we're all in fellowship with God, our joy is complete because not only are we all living right and seeking God's will, but all of our spiritual gifts are in operation. So if half of this room left, out of fellowship with God, there goes all those spiritual gifts. And so our joy is complete when we're all in fellowship. And so uh, one of the spiritual gifts is, is, a, is a gift of discernment. But if you think about what this passage is telling us, it's not talking uh, specifically about that. It's uh, about the one guy who's got that gift in the body. You know, it's up to him. You know, everybody, when something happens, we go to this guy. What do you think? It's not like that at all. It's talking about an ability that believers have to discern truth from error. Okay, there is a spiritual gift, but this is just uh, having that radar, your, your, your radar actually working. And it is something that all believers are supposed to be able to do. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like. Um, so we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but then it tells us that we're not supposed to uh, believe everything we hear we're supposed to test the spirits to determine if they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, what does John mean by spirits? What is he talking about? Is this the, the spirit of 1776? That's the spirit. And what is he talking about? Is he talking about people that die and their souls are floating around? They got murdered and nobody's figured out who murdered them so they can't go off to la-la land yet? That's not the Bible, guys. The Bible's real clear that when a person dies, they're going to go, uh, if, they're, if they've been saved, they go into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord's in heaven. But everybody else is going to go to a place, a holding tank, a place called Hades or hell. And they're going to stay there, and it's going to be a miserable experience for them, and they're going to stay there until the final judgment. They're going to be brought out. They're going to stand before him at the great white throne. This is Scripture. So, uh, ghosts are demons. There are a few weird, unique situations in Scripture, but for the most part, when people die, uh, we are given no other option, uh, biblically, than to know that they actually are in heaven or hell. And so, uh, he's not talking about those people. He's not talking about an attitude. That's the spirit. He's talking about something supernatural. God wants us to realize that when a false prophet is speaking, the source 
of his message is satanic. It is a doctrine of demons. Now that doesn't mean that every time some guy gets up in the Mormon tabernacle and gives a message that a demon is speaking through him. But we are to recognize that the source of the message is satanic. And I'm not just beating up on the Mormons this morning, but it's, uh, they're, they're, they're easy pickings. They're an easy target. In the same way, the source for truth comes from the Spirit of God. So in the first century, uh, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the apostles. The apostles were the eyewitnesses to Jesus. They had spent that, so much time with him. And uh, we, it says that they handled him and they saw him. But it also says in the, in the prologue that they saw him over a long period of time. They observed him. You know, He's, Jesus stood the test of time. Through all circumstances. What a wonderful you know, thing to say about somebody. And so the Holy, the Holy Spirit was speaking through the apostles in that first century. And now to us through the Bible. Because now we have what they have written down. And so uh, when someone is teaching the Bible. They are, they are saying that they are accurately representing the Spirit of God. Because it is the Spirit of God who spoke through the apostles and the prophets. It is the Spirit of God who wrote the Bible. Uh, holy men moved of God. These letters, this, every word, every little, every little nuance, every little abbreviation, the tense of every word is all designed by perfection by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is inspired by Him. And so when someone is presenting themselves as a Christian, or teaching the Bible, what they need to be doing is saying things that are in agreement with Scripture. So if you want to know how to test the spirits, you need to know your Bible. Do you have a Bible? Where is it at all week? John is telling us that we are sitting ducks if we don't know the truth and we don't know it very well. In verse 2, he says, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Now, this is talking about the incarnation, that Jesus came in the flesh. In chapter 2, he was denying that he was the Messiah. Okay, so uh, the gospel gets attacked from all sides. So it's not so much that you can just say, if you're trying to practice this art of, dis of discernment, as someone, you say, do you believe Jesus was in the, come in the flesh? And they say, yes. And then they say, well, aha, gotcha. You know, it's not like that. It's not the big, that's not the big test. What John's trying to show us is that the gospel gets attacked from all sides. In this particular passage in chapter 4, it's talking about the incarnation. And so here it is talking about the person of Christ. The person of Christ is what is being attacked. Now, in the prologue, uh, Jesus was, uh, John was talking about how Jesus was revealed to us or manifested. And so the idea, remember, is that something that pre-exists and now all of a sudden you're aware of it. 
It's been revealed to you. Remember, and uh, the, the word of life that we that we saw and that we heard and we handled, that we have declared to you, the word of life that was revealed to us. And so it's the picture of Jesus pre-existing and then all of a sudden being manifested to us. Now all of a sudden we're aware of him. And so it's really important to know that Jesus pre-existed creation. Uh, not, he's, it's not, he's not a created being, but he's the actual creator. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.2, the very next verse, says, He, the Word, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing has, was created that has been created. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has not been created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible is very clear that Jesus pre-existed creation and that all things, anything, there's nothing that's ever been created that he was not the creator of. The Bible leaves us with the fact that Jesus is God. And so when the word became flesh, that was an incredible act of humility and sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 is a very familiar passage to all of us. It talks about that 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 humility that Jesus had when he left his rightful place in heaven to come down here as a man, even to die on a cross for us. So when we talk about the incarnation, it's a fancy word, but it basically means that Jesus was fully man and fully God. And this is what this evil spirit is denying. Jesus was a man, he was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4, he experienced growth. Remember in Luke chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus was growing up as a little boy. He experienced growth. He was, uh, his physical body experienced hunger. He was thirsty. He became tired. He was tested. But Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was also sinless. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9 In Him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says that He is the exact representation of God's nature. And that's why when Philip said, Father, or said Jesus, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. Just show us the Father. And he said, have you been with me for so long that you say, show me the Father? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. The Father and I, I did that last week. I don't know what, uh, so, said the Father and I are one. And so it's very clear from scripture that Jesus is fully man and fully God. This is the incarnation and this is something that is attacked by cults. This is something that is attacked uh, by people who claim to be Christians, claim to believe in Jesus, but they change who he is, turn him into something that he's not.
Of course, just knowing all of this is not enough. Uh, we spent the better part of a year going through the Gospel of Mark. It hasn't been that long since we finished it. But uh, all the way back in the very beginning, we remember when, when Jesus went into the synagogue in Capernaum and he was going to speak and there was a man in, in church that Sunday morning who was demon-possessed. And he cried out with a loud voice and he said, what do, you, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The unclean spirit knew who Jesus was, but that wasn't enough. If you've been coming to church on Wednesday night, you know we've been going through a Bible study called How to Be a Contagious Christian. That's a great, great title for right now with COVID, but uh, the idea is that your faith is supposed to be something that attracts people, and they want to know what it is about you. And so uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how to tell our story, and then last Sunday, or last Wednesday, it talked about how to tell God's story. Those are two things that you have to be able to do as a believer if you want to uh, try to share your faith. You have to have a story. You have to have a, a story. You have to be able to tell somebody when you were lost and all of a sudden how you became a Christian. When did I get saved? How did that happen? It didn't just happen. You have to have a story. What's your story? And you can't tell it 58 minutes long. You've got to abbreviate. So this is one of the wonderful things about that study we were doing. It's a really good study, and it's almost over now, but uh, this is one thing. And then we talked about how to tell God's story. You know, not to, like, like Craig Ball, when he's trying to talk about the Bible, he takes an hour and a half up here going on, you know. If you want to tell somebody God's story, how can you do that in a concise way? But if you've done that, and the person is looking in the face, and they actually understand it, that's not enough. Something else has to happen. You have to actually receive Jesus. You have to actually trust in Him and res receive Him as your Lord and Savior. You have to be willing to turn from your life, the way you're living it, seeking happiness on your own, and putting your faith and trust in Him. That actually has to happen. And so here was a, a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, and he knew exactly who Jesus was. But it didn't change his heart at all. And I don't know if you remember, but... After that, they went to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus healed her. And then it tells us that the whole city Passages like this that we're studying may not be fresh in your mind all the time, but you never want to forget that. In verse 3, it goes on and says, But every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, and you've heard he's coming, and he's already in the world now. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This is why Jesus said, it's better if I leave, because the Holy Spirit will be coming. It's to your advantage if I go. This is all very good news, because without God, we wouldn't stand a chance. Verse 5, it says, They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. So, acceptance by the world is not a very good truth test, is it? As a matter of fact, if the world is in agreement, that might be a, a problem. When we talk about the world, we're talking about just seeking happiness out of, without God. Living your life, you know, we all try to be happy, we all want to be happy and have a fulfilling life. But to do that without God uh, is what it means to be worldly and to exclude Him from everything. We see our country doing this on every avenue. Blatantly just removing Him from everything. There's going to be consequences for that. Sin does have consequences. But we are from God, and anyone who knows God listens to us. And who's he talking about? Us. And anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. He's talking about the apostles, isn't he? From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. So we want to notice here in verse 6 that he says, the people who, who listen, the ones who know God listen to us. And the ones who don't, don't listen to us. John is referring to the apostles and their teachings. See, an unbeliever will not place himself under the subjection and the authority of Scripture. All you have to do is ask them what they think about the Bible. They won't talk about it like I do. When you, when you talk about the, when I talk about the Bible, it's the greatest, it's the greatest thing in the world. This is God's word. It's my authority. I trust it completely. Now, just ask somebody. They'll tell you, oh, well, you know, the Bible's a good, it's a good guide. It's a helpful artifact in how to behave. I don't know if you can really trust the translations anymore, but just get the basic idea. Didn't guys write the Bible? An unbeliever will not put himself under the authority of the Scriptures. We do. We're studying 1 John right now. So, uh, in closing, discernment begins with the Bible. And the other key component is being in fellowship with Him. You know, if we're in fellowship with God, and all the gears are hidden, and we can actually know God's will. Remember that Andy Stanley study we did so long ago where, uh, on God's will, and he said, one of the key components in, in knowing God's will is that you're willing to do it if he tells you. It's not an option. You're not, you're not weighing it, decide whether or not, uh, you know, he's, he's not going to tell you his will if that's your heart. You know, being in fellowship with God means that you, 
want to know the truth. You want to know what His will is because you want to do it. You want to follow it. Part of being in the center of God's will is being available for Him to use you. To use your money. The money that you have. Your time. All of these things come into process. And so, if we ever hope to tap into the Holy Spirit, this resource that we have, we have to be in fellowship with God and we have to know our Bible. All of us need to remember who Jesus is and what He's done for us and what He is offering to us. And we don't have to look very far to see what happens if we don't. Let's pray.